Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Doron Galili, author of the book Seeing by Electricity, The Emergence of Television, 1878 to 1939. Doron, welcome to the New Books Network. Um, thank you very much. Thanks for having me here. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Um, absolutely. Um... I'm currently talking to you from uh, Sweden, um, where I am a, a researcher at Stockholm University. I am, however, originally from Israel, and that's where I started in, in film studies. I got my BA in Tel Aviv University in film and television. After that, I moved to the United States, first to Los Angeles, where I was in the first cohort of UCLA's Moving Image Archive Studies program. Originally, I wanted to be a film archivist and to do uh, preservation and restoration of old films, um, and ended up um, continuing on a track of a film historian, I suppose, in uh, in a PhD in um, the University of Chicago. So I often say that my academic work should be good enough to justify the carbon footprint of uh, a moving so uh, far around the world uh, during this track. <laughs> Um, I, it's interesting, you describe a background that, that's about film, and yet your book is about television. You definitely talk about the intersection between television and cinema, but what led you to write a book about the history of television, and specifically the history of of television that we don't often think about, it, it, almost the, the prehistory of television? Why, that, why did you choose to write a book on that subject? I think the book is really uh, took shape by... Um, the experience of studying film and and specifically film history uh, with my long ongoing interest in silent film during the period when I was in school in the uh, starting in the very late uh, 1990s uh, through uh, um, the early 2000s. Um, I very early on discovered my uh, fascination with silent film um, I think that what Sun and Film gives us until today is really uh, a very unique experience of having a look of, you know, it could be historical records, of course, but something that is very fresh and very new at the time with an open-mindedness and open-endedness and experimental nature that Sun and Film were being products of a, of a very new medium that on the one hand, made such an impact in the world, and on the other, came into being uh, um, in the midst of a, of a world so dramatically changing by the, the modernization and technologization of, of people's life in it. So that's where my interest in late 19th century, early 20th century uh, came from. And while I was in school, the big huge boom of so-called new media, um, the, the understanding of the impact of uh, uh, the internet and particularly the World Wide Web. Um, literally the first screenings of digital images in movie theaters, um, works that were uh, made digitally all happened kind of while uh, I was going my training as uh, film scholar and this feeling of uh, media surroundings changing again, and of course the feeling of the field of cinema studies changing again with so many new concerns and questions uh, brought up by uh, digitization and, and the impact of new media made me interested in these kind of dynamics and these kinds of, of changes that occurred. And this what happens to be the, the history of um, 
television and this relationship, as you said, between cinema and television from such an early phase. We have uh, uh, a new medium that comes into the world uh, uh, being cinema, and we have these long ongoing experiments uh, on the way of becoming what television would ultimately be when, when the medium is realized and all those relationships between different forms of uh, moving imaging media, um, all these uh, settings of new standards and aesthetic codes uh, were very much echoing um, what I was seeing around me in real time um, in the you know, early 2000s. So it's a historical project, but it is very much one that is informed by a kind of series of revisions that people have adopted during this period, looking at film and looking at film history and even looking at some of the very principal terms in which we understand and theorize the cinema. I think it's a fascinating description because I, it gets to something that I was thinking about as I was reading your book, which is that how today we look at that period and it to us seems so old fashioned. I mean, I grew up before they were uh, digitally uh, adjusting the, the run times of silent films. And you see these people that are on these black and white images without sound and they're behaving in a way that is that we can you know mock and laugh, and yet you do you convey that sense of how this is very novel, how this is to maybe this is an overused word, but revolutionary in terms of its in terms of its meaning. It's not just in terms of oh here's this entertainment technology. What you talk about in your book is that you're talking about new concepts of vision. You're talking about new concepts of of of, of the impact of technology upon these people. What does it mean to be able to see images in real time? What does it mean to be able to transmit images long distance? And it's not a simple you know, sense of, well, we simply take this technology of, say, telephones and we project it forward, or we take this technology of cinema and we just assume that now we're just watching it in our homes. It, it, it involves you know, conceptualizing in very novel ways and trying to you know, take this new thing and see how it relates to the tradition. Absolutely, and and in many ways responding to to those changes that, as I mentioned, occurred in in people's lives and to cultural tastes and to and to aesthetic uh, possibilities. Now, TV, of course, did not leave with us the records that early films did. Uh, we cannot see what uh, um, the people who wrote or experimented uh, with uh, television have for the first you know several decades before we have. Um, first actual experiments with television and then ones that were in some way uh, captured. But uh, the history that I came across in, in doing this research is, is really quite fascinating and, and recorded in the way that people write imaginary stories uh, in science fiction or in technological designs of what the machines for the transmissions of images would be and, you know, Maybe in retrospect, not so surprisingly, but for me, surprising how much they sounded a lot like one another. So we have film that gives us a feeling of how things looked and also disciplinary, you know, film history being uh, um, much you know, better traveled than, than these early periods in television history uh, and, and indeed providing the very basic terms in which we know visual media of the, let's say, uh, uh, turn of the century. And then another set of uh, imaginaries and possibilities uh, that came up when the first ideas of transmitting images came into being. One of the other things you do in your book that I really liked was, as, as I said, when I approached the book, it was to me novel to think of this idea of television having a history that dates back to the 1870s. And yet, as I read your book, it seems so obvious in retrospect. Because what you're talking about is that when you start to see these new technologies emerging with the cinema, with uh, telephones, with you know even going so far back as telegraphy, it's not a huge leap for people to start thinking about what the next step is going to be. And it, it, in so many ways, that next step is so obvious, which is that, well, if we can transmit sound, why can't we transmit vision? If we can capture visual images on film, why can we not broadcast them? I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon that you know, development of that thinking in the late 19th century, in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, and who were the people that were doing this, and, and how were they 
in a sense, conceptualizing what we would come to know as television. The, the, I'm glad you're pointing at the telephone, uh, um, d- discussing this early stage of the history, because the, well, the, the, the very title of the book uh, has it, uh, it starts in 1878. And that's, let's say, roughly the earliest documents that, that I found and that I found other scholars referring to describing these kind of prospects of technologies of transmitting of uh, of moving images and this is of course something that comes very quickly after the introduction of the telephone by Bell in 1876 and even though we will not have any working television sets until the mid 1920s and even though we will not have television stations uh, until second half of the 1930s, um, the fact of having these imaginary concepts of television is very much rooted in material experience uh, of the time. And so the very real technology of the telephone uh, uh, with the novelty, still few people use it, few people that have it at home, the prospects of uh, what this new technology uh, can do sets in motion um, these fantasies or ideas, imaginaries of um, a similar uh, capability or additional capability to to transmit images and see at a distance. Another thing that um, makes the telephone important uh, to this history is the fact that the telephone itself uh, as novel as, and radical as it is, uh, was itself a continuation, continuation of what the telegraph had been for already three, four decades by that point. And indeed, when uh, um, Alexander Graham Bell files his uh, patent application for the, the telephone, he doesn't yet call it telephone. The patent is titled An, an Improvement on Telegraphy. So we have those networks of lines that transmit uh, signals representing letters by uh, um, electric pulses that are then used to convey sound at the distance. And I think this development or, or this leap from transmitting written characters to transmitting sounds made it possible for people to imagine transmitting uh, um, images, moving images. And at that point, we are still you know, 15 years or so before cinema, as, as we know it, had begun. Um, for the second part of your question, the people that I say, uh, if people start imagining this possibility of transmitting images, are really quite across the board. Um, we do have a number of you know hoaxes, uh, uh, stories in the newspapers about things that definitely did not exist at the time. Uh, including in serious newspapers, uh, uh, communicating it to, to masses of readers. Hey, there is this new invention invented by an anonymous uh, uh, inventor somewhere in Europe that allows you to see what happens uh, in real time far away. And we ought to remember people who read this were not necessarily fools to believe uh, a number of those hoaxes that were reported because they have read and experienced on their daily life um, the introduction of so many new technologies uh, uh, that you know extended fundamental human capabilities that were in place for for thousands of years, if not for forever. Um, and indeed, at the same time, real electrical engineers um, have been trying to find practical solution for the challenge of capturing images, scanning them converting them to electric signals so they can uh, transmit them at a distance the same way that the telegraph and the telephone uh, did. So patent records, some of them already in the 1880s, um, discussions in philosophical societies where cutting edge science is communicated um, uh, closely between, uh, among the scientific communities, Newspapers and very quickly also uh, science fiction stories. And these are the, the very first days of science fiction literature um, with its still ongoing fascination with new technologies and so on. And we have quite a lot uh, described in 
by international uh, a group of of writers of fictional writing. Um, so it would take several decades for anyone actually to look at a television screen, but a large number of people are already informed and invested in this idea comes, you know, the 1890s and the appearance of cinema. And I like how you put it in the sense that, you know, this was being an age of technological wonders, you know, artificial lighting, you know, long distance communication and by voice and so forth, that that is not implausible to think that someone, that the invention of, of, of long distance viewing is, is just around the corner. And yet you, in your chapter where you're talking about the concepts of vision of the time, it, in some ways it, it's, it reminds me of how for so long people were trying to fly by mimicking the, uh, at, by, by mimicking the, the, uh, the way that birds do it. The, the, mm-hmm. the notion that, you know, they were thinking that if we can somehow take the way that the eye processes vision and, and how they approached the challenge of, transmitting uh, moving images in that way. It, it, it struck me as how they're trying to wrestle with, you know, this very advanced idea or this, 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 this very advanced goal they're achieving by, you know, reverting back to the, this traditional concept of simply mimicking the human body. Uh, absolutely. And as much as uh, it is new technologies that uh, um, introduce themselves into people's life in, in the modern period, it was also typified by a fairly radical, you know, uh, rearticulation of the very principle in which uh, uh, the human body works. Uh, um, modern physiologists uh, came up with new knowledge and understanding of uh, how we see, how we sense things. Um, and looking at the earliest designs that, as I mentioned before, scientists are trying to f- put together schemas that would allow for processing images uh, in a way that uh, will allow to send them um, at a distance by electricity, they end up, in some cases explicitly intentional with relation to this, very close to how during the same, you know, half a century, um, physiologists uh, come to understand how we see. And this is a time where we understand that it is not the you know, famous reversed image that uh, uh, falls on our retina when our eyes open that uh, gives us visual knowledge. Uh, physiologists uh, understood that it is the brain that perceives uh, uh, our visible world, and it is the brain, brain that is informed by nerve signals communicated to it from the uh, optical nerve. Uh, and this is something that... Uh, um, pretty much becomes like an er image transmission technology. Uh, 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 the eye, the retina, the, the photosensitive elements uh, in the eyeball, the optic nerve uh, 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 that makes its way to the visual centers in the brain, pretty much is a prototype for how an image can be captured by a camera, scanned, uh, converted into electric signals, and then sent uh, um, elsewhere. And this is important because, first, it really it is the new science of the human sensorium that allows technicians to, to do this, but also because, obviously, this idea of seeing at a great distance had existed long before 1878. We have stories about uh, uh, dreams and uh, uh, mirages and crystal balls and magic mirrors and, and what's not since, you know, biblical days. But this was a period where, on the one hand, it is electrical technology that uh, uh, suggested itself as something that could bring uh, uh, an actual technological realization of this uh, uh, much older uh, dream, and that um, the shaping uh, of a new understanding about how a human sense the world that gives these initial models for scientists to design their uh, machines according to. And as I mentioned in the book, it sometimes very literally picks up on what our human eye and, and, and brain do when we see things in, in one of those science fiction novels, uh, a television-like machine that allows people to 
see pictures from all over the world and to talk to people all over the world is described as an extended optic nerve. As if they are in one place, their eye could be overseas, uh, uh, and what the apparatus is, is basically uh, a very, very long uh, nerval fiber that connects the distance to, to their own brain. And that gets to another uh, thing you do in the book, which you're showing about how people are coming to terms with what it would mean to have a type of technology like that, where you can see long distances, where you can you know, capture and transmit images. And you talk about how, okay, maybe the technology didn't work out, but people were nonetheless also reverting to it as a way of trying to process what this technology would do and what it would mean for them in terms of their lives and the lives of the world around them. Yeah, we, we already talked about how Telegraph allowed to send text uh, at a great distance, virtually instantaneously, and then the telephone to send sound and, and uh, kind of uh, struggle to realize it with images. And of course, there is the, uh, the flip side of it. So with a, with a Telegraph, you can get the news from Beijing in order to print them in tomorrow's uh, paper um, much faster than you could uh, uh, a single generation before, which would take you weeks and weeks. But then there is, why would someone in San Francisco be interested in news from Beijing? Why will someone in Stockholm be interested in a machine that will allow him to look at uh, a library in Egypt? The, the other dimension here, one of, um, you know, gradually globalized market, um, the, the needs um, of the colonial world, um, what we see very quickly when film begins with uh, um, international markets for movies and also uh, um, international scope that the earliest films cover in order to show, you know, initially their uh, European viewers. So these imaginaries of a machine that could allow the parents in London to see their kids in faraway colonies, um, the, the machine that will allow people to conduct business uh, uh, with anyone in the world. And the telephone already enabled it. But again and again, this idea of you can actually see who you're talking to, which now I guess everybody will frown upon in our age of Zoom. And, and <laughs> Seems maybe less great of an idea, but yeah, if you're doing several million dollar businesses over the phone, the idea that you are not seeing the person that you are paying to is is quite a big deal. And, and long before television existed, the promise of you know a safer way to to conduct communication, um, and of course with this you know everything else that comes with globalized markets and, and colonialism, uh, uh, operating uh, uh, military. Um, at a distance and uh, distribution of culture, whether in the in the most straightforward uh, colonial uh, um, aspiration um, or in socialist novels, you know, spreading the word about a, a class struggle uh, uh, without boundaries of, of nation states and, and geography and so on are, are very much there. And that's that was a very fascinating lesson. Uh, um, possibilities of television, not only not like broadcasts uh, uh, and not like what we are doing with television today, but such a close correspondence to, um, to what would be the cultural concerns of the, of the late 19th century. I, I should add, by the way, that's one of the things about your book I enjoyed was seeing all of the images that you reproduce throughout the book showing you know, uh, of, from the period of how people in the 1900s or even the 1880s and 1870s were doing these imagined sketches of what visual telephony would look like. You know, here's this idea of the L Edison's uh, telephonoscope and this is what it will be. And they're, 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 they're already, you know, postulating this and, and what it would be like. And it, it does, you know, in a day and age where we have, as you mentioned, Zoom, we have Skype, we have, uh, you know, all these other, uh, we, we have all these other technologies for doing this kind of thing that, you know, was for so long visualized as science fiction, but how far back that vision goes and how even in that period of, of the Gilded Age and, and the early 20th century, we're already conceptualizing 
this thing that nowadays we sort of you know <laughs> view with as you mentioned with 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 you know maybe not quite the boon <laughs> that we once thought it was going to be. I think I think we all OD'd on 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 zooming and uh, uh, teleconferencing now, but um, it took many many years for the idea of a television studio airing a show uh, uh, to come into being. Uh, you mentioned the telephone in the beginning. The, the idea that you see the person that you talk to at a distance was uh, well, much closer to media that existed in in people's life. Um, and as I mentioned, maybe closer to, to needs and uh, um, desires of the time. And it's a f- I don't remember if any of those made it in the book, but one of the tropes that go across several years of different illustrators is uh, a scenario of people kissing uh, over a, a visual telephone kind of uh, a television. So they're in touch with one another. They can see one another. They can uh, uh, hear one another. And, and the scenarios of kissing on the screen brings in the you know physical presence as you know, another one of those uh, um, uh, thresholds that that could not be uh, uh, crossed. And again, in some cases, we know for a fact that scientists who worked on uh, developing these kind of machines were themselves inspired by what they read in science fiction novels or so in. Um, any of those uh, illustrations that that you refer to. So there was this really uh, um, feedback loop of ideas that were imaginary, that could have been pulled or drawn in order to entertain, and to how they informed what people were seeking out to do with actual technological means. Now, up until this point, we've been focusing upon the relationship between the concept of television and uh and, and telephones and telegraphy. I was wondering if you could, we could shift now to talking a bit about the relationship with early cinema. And this is one mm-hmm. where nowadays it seems so natural to think about. I mean, so much of, of television is about, uh, you know, letting people watch films in their homes. We have entire channels devoted just to doing that. And yet, as you explained, that the way that, that cinema works in terms of capturing an image, preserving an image versus uh, what we see with what we have or what they're conceiving with television back then are very different. And in some ways they're almost at cross purposes. How did the two concepts work, especially as cinema emerged as the dominant means of, you know, of, of having images, uh, you know, sent and, and, and processed back then in the late 19th, and early 20th centuries. I think you're absolutely right. Today we, we think of, film and television with, with a great uh, degree of overlap between them in the actual material that, that we uh, uh, utilize both of them for and, you know, university departments dedicated for the study of film and television. Um, and one of the tasks in writing the book, in trying to challenge this uh, uh, scenario where which film and television are two mass media forms that's starting circa the 1940s, are in uh, a rivalry um, with one another, was to understand them in um, the fairly distinctive terms in which they were initially understand, understood uh, uh, when, they, when they first emerged. And if we mention that the initial ideas of moving image transmission, let's say that the bigger category with which television, as we call it today, is, is part of alongside the other Skype and Zoom uh, um, uh, possibilities uh, comes from first imaginaries triggered by the telephone and itself uh, development of the telegraph. So we have this whole um, milieu of media in the social uses and in the technological basis that um, this media refers to or comes out of. And although we are talking about moving image, um, when cinema begins, of course it has you know cultural relations to to media that has been around it, um, but it comes from practices and technical bases that relates to photography, of course, and back to the um, camera obscura to a number of uh, um, medical. Uh, visual technologies um, and other inscription uh, technologies, including the phonograph. Of course, here we have the important connection of Thomas Edison, first working uh, on on sound recording 
uh, and then uh, working on film. So we have technologies of inscription and of display and practices of reproduction and performance that inform the work of the first people to invent and to make films and a very distinct kind of area of media, media practices, media technologies that inform um, the uh, route that um, television ultimately takes. Now, these overlaps, these confusions, these borrowings from one another is something that we see from extremely early on. Um, for some people, when television will be realized, you know, someone imagining in the 1890s what will happen in that 20th century, um, they could talk about something very close to what we call today streaming, you know, a way to send the film to anywhere in the world, which is something that comes the 1930s, the film industry is quite excited about. It solves them a lot of time and material uh, constraints that come with the film distribution. Um, we have stories of um, people sitting at home and using that telephone in order to watch uh, material straight from the stage. So imagining something that would be very close to what cinema had offered, um, still offering, uh, completely bypassing it, thinking of a relationship between um, theater and, and, and the television. And the connections are sometimes personified. I, I talk at quite some length about what uh, Edison uh, had in mind about the prospects of transmitting uh, moving images. Uh, he was very well aware that people were interested in this concept, that it's been on people's mind for almost 20 years uh, when the novelty of uh, cinema came into being. And he has some stories, I don't know, anywhere between actual technical plans to just creating a media buzz around his new invention that talks about uh, several kinds of hybrids uh, between um, cinema and, uh, uh, and moving transmission uh, capabilities. Immediately after he's first talking about his invention of film in the press, people already talk about uh, something like uh, a VCR or a TiVo, uh, um, using film not to show movies, but using film in order to record what televisual transmission uh, uh, will be. So if today we have movies on TV and live transmission of operas from the Met in uh, uh, movie theaters, and this seems to us to violate kind of the, the natural boundaries between what film has been for century and some and what television has been for decades, it is from the very beginning that uh, uh, confusions, overlaps, uh, uh, hybrid forms are of uh, cultural concern. What you're also describing, though, is how as the idea of television, as it now is increasingly being called by the early 20th century, is becoming closer to reality, that they're processing what it would mean increasingly through cinema, because the second half of your book is a very interesting examination of both how these ideas are interacting with the growing uh, institutions of cinema. And there's a point that you make that uh, in, in that the introduction to that part of your book about how unlike telegraphy, unlike radio, unlike movies, when television comes into being, it's not in a basically a, a vista of, of limitless possibilities. There are already these existing concepts and institutions that television is crammed into. It's, in effect, it's regulated from the first. And it's not just in terms of like a legal regulation, in terms of you know, governing institutions, but a conceptual regulation that they're approaching it as in, okay, now we've had uh, telephones for half a century. Now we've had this film industry for several decades. And these are the institutions that are now embracing it. And you examine it in, some, in four very interesting contexts. You look at the United States, you look at Soviet Union, and you look at Germany and then Italy. I was wondering if you could start us off by talking a bit about Hollywood uh, and how uh, the cinematic industry of the early 20th century, 
as it had now matured, was now coming to terms with the possibility of television broadcasting. It's exactly it. It's a possibility. And that's that's one of the, the you know, for me, uniquely interesting things in the history of, of television, because we talked about the 1870s, 1880s, and the uh, initial thought about the possibilities, the, the actual realization, the, the building of working prototypes come only in the mid-20s, uh, and only after that, you know, comes the 30s, there are actual uh, um, experiments with, you know, the big complex apparatus and mechanisms of, uh, of um, public uh, um, television um, services. And it is still a possibility then, and one that has been in the air for a very, very, very long time. And this is something that sets the history of television apart from the history of film. And I think from many media histories that we've experienced ourselves, um, Edison started experimenting with motion picture film, I don't know, circa 1891. Um, he was, by the mid-1890s, was able to show them. Film screenings we have, of course, since 1895, and before the beginning of the 20th century, uh, a film becomes a mass medium and a big, with a big international interest and, and market. If you remember the World Wide Web coming into being uh, um, in the 1990s, it was very quick and uh, uh, how it exploded and, and you know, became part of, of so many people's uh, uh, life in, in so many aspects. And, and television has this very, very, very slow and drawn out um, emergence. So when we can actually talk about starting television station, we have a very, very different surroundings. Um, the telegraph, of course, is no longer the, the, the main uh, uh, inspiration or, or imaginary form that uh, uh, informs how uh, um, television could have been. Um, we have Hollywood. We have the, the massive, uh, uh, both economic uh, uh, institution and uh, cultural form of the feature, feature film, the mass-produced, uh, um, internationally circulating uh, feature film that uh, is now the model for what the moving images are. So Hollywood, as it would for many, many years afterwards, sees in television both a threat, something that could um, steal potential uh, of yours time from it, um, but also uh, something that could signify the future of, uh, of motion pictures. And they are looking into either operating their own television stations or into broadcasting their own films uh, um, as a way, as a you know, completely new way of exhibiting uh, works of this sort that they have been uh, involved in from the beginning of Hollywood. And it then, with the relationship with yet another new medium that was nowhere around the horizon in the 1870s and 1880s, the broadcast radio that uh, gives television the form that we are familiar with today. And again, the history of broadcast radio only starts in the um, 1920s. It is a completely new technology with the beginning of the century, and it's a very different economic model that uh, was completely separated from the initial ideas of, of what moving image transmission uh, would be that ends up giving uh, the form to how uh, the first television stations start in the late 1930s and have more or less remained so up until the age of uh, you know cable and streaming. And that was one of the things that I thought was interesting with the contrast that you described, because whereas in your chapter talking about Hollywood, it's in effect, you know, television is being received by industries and industries are the ones that are you know, coming to terms with it and deciding how to use it. Whereas in Europe, what you describe is more of a theoretical approach. And I was especially fascinated by your chapter about uh, uh, Giga Vertov and how he's conceptualizing what television might mean for the Soviet Union, because there you're talking about a very different way of approaching television and how to use television than what you would see in the United States. Yeah. The, the, I think on an even more 
fundamental level. What we see in this uh, uh, period of the history of television is uh, discussions of television on a, on a national setting. The same way that today we have a clear, you know, concept of American television versus Swedish television versus Israeli television and uh, um, television channels broadcast to the entire nation state and more or less only uh, uh, to their state. In the first chapters of the book, in the, in the discussion of the late 19th, early 20th century, this really does not exist. Um, the same way that the telephone and the telegraph very early on became, you know, global communication infrastructures. Um, the same way that, you know, the, the Lumiere films from the beginning were, were shot and, and shipped uh, around the world. These imaginaries of television, the, the technological designs, the scientific community, the circulation of the science fiction uh, books that describe them were all uh, global. Um, or, you know, the very least international and, and, and uh, the materials that I cite in the first chapters come from uh, Britain and France and, and Portugal and the United States and uh, um, a number of different countries. Comes the um, interwar era, mass media becomes part of big uh, um, companies Broadcasting becomes uh, uh, nationally regulated, and here we have very big differences between how um, different nations are, are seeing it. And if we have Hollywood and the, the commercial um, nationwide radio broadcast services as kind of uh, uh, the main actors that television is negotiating with when when uh, broadcasting began. At the same time, elsewhere in the world, we have those very, very different um, uh, cultural matrix. And, and the case of uh, Vertov, who is uh, a celebrated uh, avant-garde filmmaker uh, from the Soviet era, who is uh, a political and formal uh, uh, path-breaking um, cinema is become, you know, crucial uh, landmark in in film history. <coughs> Excuse me. Starts thinking um, in the uh, 1920s about what could television be, and uh, not thinking about complementing uh, a mass market like Hollywood and not thinking about a commercial-driven uh, domestic medium like uh, broadcast radio, he's imagining um, television maybe as, you know, fully realizing um, what revolutionary cinema was uh, aiming at doing at, at this avant-garde period of, of Soviet culture. Uh, and he's talking about something closer to much later uh, ideas that we will come, uh, you know, think of something like citizen journalism in, in the age of uh, uh, World Wide Web or something like this. He's thinking of workers actually informing each other's lives by having this network of uh, intercommunication with one another. He's not thinking about uh, uh, televisions in people's living rooms showing entertainment. He's talking about uh, a communal viewing of television um, with a, a political, revolutionary, ideological function. And the setting of post-revolutionary Soviet Union, uh, with a, especially with a distant periphery, not quite the site where we think about new media typically, um, was one that really new telecommunications possibilities had utopian promise when you could talk about how the message, uh, 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 the economic planning, the ideology from Moscow could transform uh, how people in 11 time zones from there would live in the rural far north, um, for instance. So it is a very different interpretation of the prospects of television that Vertov has. And in addition, he knows very well that it is a competition with the West, the same way that he's avant-garde political film was on the margin of uh, the film world, already then dominated by 
escapist entertainment cinema, he feels like, okay, this coming of television gives us a second chance. And in the post-revolutionary world, this mass medium could be made into something else. And then you have with, uh, in uh, another part of Europe, this effort to approach and understand television through the application of classical film theory. And here you focus upon Rudolf Arnheim and his ideas. I was wondering if you could explain what was going on with this third approach. I mean, how, how would uh, these people in Europe coming to terms with the promise of television and how was that then in turn informing their understanding of their older theories about film as well? I, I chose to write about Rudolf Arnheim as, uh, as a case study of, you know, a very important theorist of film who was part of this broader conversation about, let me say, the nature of, of cinema, the, the very articulation of the medium property, sorry, the medium-specific properties of cinema in the, in the formative years of film theory, things that, you know, still uh, uh, first-year uh, film students read uh, uh, to this day because he was uh, uh, uniquely addressing television extremely early on. And he started his work in Germany uh, a psychologist um, by training. Uh, he was a student of the pioneers of Gestalt psychology, and he wrote about um, film as art uh, in the early 1930s, um, writing a canonical book in cinema studies that describes the aesthetic strategies uh, in which film can be used in order to be a unique, specific uh, artistic medium that is not dependent on conventions from other forms and does not merely reproduce reality. And this is something that, you know, today, of course, theoretical orientations and burning questions and altered quite a bit. But we look back at uh, these body of ideas, we call them classical, and uh, um, we follow up with these ideas that, yeah, cinema is uh, uh, a unique medium with its own medium-specific attributes. And as I said in the beginning, something that then is troubled when, quote-unquote, new media comes, when films are no longer made on motion picture film, but digitally, uh, and new aesthetic and formal possibilities uh, uh, come into being. There's a lot of discussion about what, you know, what is cinema today? How are things altered? And it was fascinating to see Arnheim was one of the people to talk about cinematic specificity, not the only one, not necessarily the most uh, uh, celebrated one today, but one of the important voices in those attempts at uh, formulating what cinematic specificity is, um, who looked around and saw the debates uh, um, about the coming of television. And here... We have a very early case where the existence of another form of moving image informs thought about cinema in the you know, first generation uh, uh, classical film theorists, not um, the way that the field kind of then adapted to uh, uh, consider or uh, uh, revise some of the categories in light of an altering uh, uh, media surroundings, but someone who is articulating the canonical ideas, seeing the, the coming of television and uh, starts uh, uh, articulating thoughts in light of the fact that moving images are not uh, uh, solely the domain of film. Uh, uh, the, the monopoly of, of film uh, are broken already in the 1930s because we have now another technology that, that enables uh, this. So this is... Um, sort of a prehistory, if you will, of debates that we then were encountering 50, 60 years later in, in cinema studies. And that moment um, of the 1930s, where so many other concerns, of course, inform how people discuss um, media and aesthetics, particularly the kind of uh, uh, work that Arnheim was doing as during this period, he has to flee Germany, being an intellectual and, and, and Jewish. Uh, uh, he's leaving first to Italy, then, then to the United States. 
and to see some of the very first, you know, academic, uh, uh, theoretical um, articulations of uh, um, possibilities and aesthetics and potential social impacts of uh, television. And when you are a, a Jewish intellectual who is fleeing, then, uh, of course, his thought about social impact of television services would again be one that is very different from the one debated in Hollywood or from the one that Vertov was thinking of in uh, young Soviet uh, Union. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Um, several things, not directly television related, but perhaps continuing what I was doing with the book in terms of um, looking at some early instances of encountering ideas that became fundamental to, to the discipline. Um, so if, as I mentioned, we have this body of thought that we call today classical film theory, some of the most fundamental ideas about uh, uh, cinema that, you know, even if we look at today's old school, we still is something that we look and, and revise today. I'm interested in how those ideas were discussed in broader circles beyond that of uh, um, academics or theorists or of the canon that we have. So I'm looking at several projects relating to encounters with uh, um, fundamental ideas about cinema in other kind of debates, uh, some relating to film acting, where um, practitioners and commentators on acting trying to distinguish between film and theater according to the difference in the experience of viewing a performer we produced on the screen on our own stage, looking at some of the earliest um, interactions of uh, uh, film criticism and psychoanalysis, which take place long before film becomes an academic discipline uh, and about early application of aesthetic ideas into educational film. So even if, uh, uh, I am, for now at least, putting television aside. Uh, uh, the history of uh, uh, debates about key notions that came to form our, you know, the basic of our uh, understanding of film is, is still something that I'm interested in and, uh, uh, and pursuing. Those do sound like some very fascinating projects, and I hope that we can have you back on a future New Books Network podcast to feature them. That would be lovely. Thank you. Duran Galili, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too.